All right, awesome. Looking forward to the Senegal dinner this year and what God's going to do through Millington over in the continent of Africa. Uh, but back here right now today, we're going through a sermon series called His Kingdom Come. Uh, we're traveling through the gospel according to Matthew, following the life and ministry of Jesus uh, from the days when he was an itinerant teacher uh, all the way through uh, up until Easter when he will eventually die for the sins of the world. And so we're picking up this morning right where we left off last week. Uh, Pastor Bob's sermon last week was just incredible. He did an excellent job over, oh, oh, what's the word for that? Surveying uh, the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and it was just, just, one, just masterfully done. And what he taught us, if you remember, if you were here, uh, was that we're to pursue righteousness not so much from the outside in, but from the inside out. And right at the end of that sermon, uh, there's something very interesting that gets said at the very end of Matthew chapter 7. In fact, let me put it on the screen just to remind you. It says this, uh, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not like the teachers of the law. And so the natural question that the readers of Matthew would ask after this is simply this, where did he get that authority? What gives him the right to teach like this and to supersede the scribes and Pharisees and teachers of the law? Does Jesus really have the right to teach like this? And so what Matthew does next is he puts together a bundle of nine different miracles in a row, back to back to back. He's proving that Jesus really does have the kind of authority that he claims to have. And so in the next two chapters, we're going to see Jesus exercising that authority in all different realms, uh, his authority over disease, his authority over uh, demons, and even his authority over death. And I want to look, for you, look with you today uh, at these first six miracles that he goes through together, and each one has a very valuable lesson for us today. Before we do that, let's pray and ask for God's help, shall we? Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me today? Oh, Heavenly Father, we pause before you now, thanking you for preserving these words for us that we might learn from them even today, 2,000 years later. Holy Spirit, you are the one who has inspired uh, this text, and so you are the one who needs to open up our eyes, open up our ears, and open up our hearts as well, that we might learn from you. And so God, may the meditations of our hearts, may the words of my mouth be acceptable to you, O oh Lord, our rock and our Redeemer. We pray this for Christ's sake, for his reputation. Amen. John Merrick. He died in London in 1890. He was only 26 years old. He was famously called the Elephant Man. He suffered from neurofibromatosis. Nodes extended from his head like a giant mass of dough. From his back hung sack-like bags of flesh covered by a kind of cauliflower skin. In addition to this, a hip disease left him permanently lame, unable to walk without the aid of a stick. When Dr. Frederick Treves found him, he was a senior surgeon at that time and lecturing at the prestigious London Hospital. When Treves found Merrick, he was at that time being used as just a circus freak. Because of the scorn and laughing of the circus patrons, John had almost completely withdrawn into himself. When he was not on display at the sideshow, he would often wear a sack over his head to mask his looks. Friends, everywhere around us, 
there are people who are hurting. Some of them, not that extreme, but in a very real way, they are hurting. You and I are surrounded by people who feel cast aside by society. They have suffered, sometimes all of their lives, often on the outside, but often also on the inside as well. Uh, People whose spirits have been crushed by loss. The single mom who's been hurt by emotional abuse. The teenager who endures mistreatment at school. The special needs child who feels so isolated and alone. All around us, there are people who are deeply hurting and they struggle to trust others because they genuinely wonder if anyone truly cares. The first miracle of Matthew chapter 8 records a time where Jesus encounters a man who is excluded from his society. And I want you to see exactly how Jesus responds to this man, because not only does the first miracle show us the heart of our Lord Jesus Christ, but it also provides for us a model that we may follow as well. Pick up the text with me in Matthew 8, 1. When he came down from the mountainside, he being Jesus, large crowds followed him. A man with leprosy came and knelt before him. Now, in those days, lepers, for medical and for contagious reasons, uh, were to be isolated, according to Leviticus uh, chapter 13. In ancient Israel, anybody who had skin discoloration was supposed to stay completely clear of all other people until they were cured. But this man had heard about this rabbi Jesus, who was going around with great power, and no doubt, people were calling Jesus the Messiah who was to come, a a word and a concept loaded with expectations. We read in the prophet Isaiah chapter 35, he will come and save you, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. In other words, there were these expectations about the Messiah who would come with a miraculous healing ministry. This man knows that. So this man approaches Jesus in a spirit of humility, gets down on his knees to beg him. Can you picture the scene? Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Notice this man is speaking desperately, but also somewhat hesitantly. He's unsure about what will happen. Don't get me wrong, I don't think he's unsure about Jesus' ability. He's just perhaps not assuming that Jesus is going to grant his request. Perhaps after a lifetime of rejection and being cast adrift, he is unsure if he qualifies and is worthy of this healing. So he's hesitant, but although hesitant, I sense from him that he is also full of faith. And after this moment, his life will change forever. Verse three, and Jesus stretched out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately, he was cured of his leprosy. Wow. Now, the really important thing about this miracle you need to know is that in the Old Testament, 
in the old covenant. Lepers were to remain outside of the community of believers because of the risk of infection. They were quarantined. There's a huge lesson that Matthew is teaching us, though. And it's this, Jesus has come for the physically unclean. In the old covenant, it was the unclean who could make the clean unclean. In the new covenant, it's going to be the clean who can make the unclean clean. Now, there's a spiritual lesson going on, which is amazing. But the other thing about this miracle that you need to notice is it teaches us about the identity of Jesus. The only person that they believed could cure leprosy was God himself. You might remember there was a man named Naaman in the Old Testament. 2 Kings 5, 7 records this story. Naaman goes to the king of Israel to heal him, and the king responds with these words, quote, am I God that I can heal leprosy? Question mark. This gives us a clue to an answer to a question that we are all asking at this point reading the book of Matthew. The question that Matthew is asking is, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Where does he get that authority? With that said, the cleansing of the leper is amazing, but I want to move on to show you the second miracle. The second miracle is about a Roman centurion. A centurion was a commanding officer in the Roman Empire. He carried with him great authority. There's our word. He also hears about Jesus. He also comes to him with a request because his servant had gotten sick and he says, Jesus, my servant is ill and Jesus actually replies to him, I will come and heal him. Then the centurion says something amazing. Take a look. Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes. And I tell that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. What is he saying? What the Roman centurion knew was that there was an unbroken chain of command in the empire. The authority that he carried as a centurion went all the way up the ranks, all the way up to the emperor himself. And so the centurion's word carried with it, in a very real way, the authority of the emperor. And now he says, you, Jesus, I believe, carry with you the very authority of God himself. Jesus hears this, and he is astonished, he's amazed at this man's audacity, this man's great faith. He says, I've never even seen this kind of faith, even in all of Israel. Go! Your servant will be healed immediately. And he was. Amazing. Not only is Jesus all-powerful, but the lesson that Matthew is drawing out here is very similar to the first miracle. Not only did Jesus come for the physically unclean, he also came for the ethnically outcast. This was a Roman. This was a Gentile. This was also an outsider. This kingdom that Jesus has brought is not just a kingdom for Israel. This thing is going global. We, as followers of Jesus, need to be reminded of that too. 
Often we can get a little too narrowly focused, but the Bible does not say God so loved the United States of America. It says God so loved the world. Every person matters to God. The gospel is for everyone. See, if we're gonna be followers of Jesus, we need to really think about what it looks like to think globally. What does it look like to love those who are ethnically outcast? The stranger, the foreigner, the refugee, those on the margins, the outsider. That is where the heart of our Lord is right from the very beginning. Which brings us to the third miracle. The third miracle, strategically chosen by Matthew right here, involves one of the most culturally marginalized people in the first century, a woman. In those days, their society was extremely patriarchal. One of the things that gets emphasized in Jesus' ministry, though, again and again and again, is the manner in which he treats women with dignity and respect that is unprecedented at this time. At this point in the Gospel of Matthew, Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, has a woman in his family who is ill. And Matthew tells us in verse 14, when Jesus came into Peter's house, he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her. She got up and began to wait on him. Matthew, as he is writing, begins to skillfully craft his case with this third miracle. Uh, Jesus has come for the culturally marginalized. These three miracles are purposefully placed here to teach us that Jesus has come for those on the outside, the physically unclean, the ethnically outcast, the culturally marginalized. And friends, one of the ways that we can show that we're actually in touch with the will of Jesus is shown by the way we treat people who the rest of the world tends to dismiss. Our Lord comes with compassion to minister to those who feel most acutely their need for him because they are on the outside. But the other thing I wanted to just notice here in these first few miracles is that Jesus will often use the ministry of a healing touch no matter what their physical condition is. Now, don't misunderstand. I suppose in our day it's important to point out that there is such a thing as inappropriate touch. That's not what this text is teaching. It's sad that our world has so twisted this that we even have to mention that. But we would also be missing something if we didn't notice that the Gospel of Matthew records many examples of Jesus' healing touch. Jesus used his hands to do good for others in God's name. And I emphasize that because Jesus calls us to a hands-on ministry as well. Jesus demonstrates what we should be doing with our hands. Now, just take a look at your own hands for a moment, would you? While you're doing that, I want to read you a quote from Harold Russell, a military veteran who deeply appreciated hands because his, his own hands had been destroyed during combat in World War II. He describes hands this way, quote, what wonderful, efficient machines they were. Hands, so simple. Just some bones, muscles, nerves, blood cells, and skin. Nothing to them, really. And yet, how valuable, how perfect, how cunningly contrived to do so many marvelous things like pitching a ball or painting a picture or hugging a friend. Did it ever occur to you that God wants to use your hands to be his hands in the life of those around you? 
to lend a hand, to use your hands to help them cook a meal, to use your hands to pray for them. Friends, today, we get to be the hands and the feet of Jesus Christ. Let me tell you how personal this was for John Merrick. The elephant man, he was 22 when Dr. Treves took him into a hospital as a permanent resident, supplying him with a bed, a sitting room, and a bathroom. It proved to be one of the two most important events in his life. The other transformational event occurred when a young lady entered his room, simply smiled at him, and shook his hand. With that simple gesture, he began to sob uncontrollably. The only other woman that had ever shook his hand was his own mother. In that event right there, that was so transformational for him. It was said that from then on, John Merrick completely lost his shyness. From then on, he kept his door open, uh, loving to see those who would come and visit, and the world flocked to him. He had finally found a place of acceptance where being ugly did not matter and being strange was now inconsequential. After that one simple handshake, it was discovered that this John was actually a highly intelligent, sensitive, and an imaginative gentleman. And for those of us who are Christians, you may know that he knew his Bible and his prayer book very well. Now, just think about that lady. How amazing that one woman who cared enough to reach out and shake his hand and look past his appearance, appearances and just saw a, a suffering child of God could make such a difference. You know, it's, it's the little things, isn't it? Sometimes, sometimes we think we have to do such big, huge things for God. And you know, there, there's a time and a place for that. I get it. But more often, the opportunities that come our way are the day-to-day, -day, daily sort of mundane chances to show love and care towards those that God has placed around us. We get to be his hands. So those are the first three miracles, really pretty amazing. Jesus' power over disease, uh, his ministry to the outsider. Uh, it really teaches us some lessons about how we should be his hands and his feet today. But at this point, I want to take a moment and just say something about miracles in general. And talk about how do you interpret miracles when you encounter them in the gospel stories? First of all, what is a miracle uh, to be specific? Uh, if I'm driving out in the parking lot of the mall and I, and I find a parking spot and that's close, is that a miracle, so to speak? I mean, what exactly qualifies under this particular category of miracles? Uh, well, there's a helpful definition I found by Richard Pertill in his book, In Defense of Miracles, that I think would be fitting at this time. He says this, a miracle is an event brought about by the power of God that is a temporary exception to the ordinary course of nature for the purpose of showing that God has acted in history. That's a great definition. A miracle is an event brought about by the power of God that is a temporary exception to the ordinary course of nature for the purpose of showing that God has acted in history. Now that we know what miracles are, the next question we should ask is when we encounter miracles in the gospel stories, how do we interpret them? How should we relate to them? And there are two, I think, inappropriate ways uh, to relate to them, two kind of extremes, if you will. The first extreme reaction is what I'll call arrogant cynicism. This is the more skeptical person. 
Uh, this is like Michael Shermer from Skeptic Magazine, who thinks anyone who believes in miracles is uneducated and uncivilized. This is the person who says, look, Dave, I'm into science, not science fiction. I don't believe any of that garbage. They have a presupposition. They presuppose there is simply no such thing as miracles. That is articulating a worldview called naturalism, which is the assumption that all events in history are fully explainable by natural causes. What you need to know about this is that many scholars actually believe that the philosophy of naturalism is actually on its way out. Uh, there's a book by Tom Nagel, the distinguished professor at NYU. He serves in two departments, philosophy and law. He has a book called Mind and Cosmos. The subtitle is this, Why Materialistic Neo-Darwinism is Almost Assuredly Incorrect. And one of the reasons is because the philosophy of, the philosophy of naturalism cannot account for the vast amount of data and documented data that we have of the supernatural world. Uh, Pastor Bob actually talked about this in his sermon on miracles last fall, and I would encourage you to check that out on our website if you didn't listen to that. I have on my shelf a book written by Dr. Craig Keener. It's a two-volume work just simply called Miracles. And in that book, he documents approximately 1,000 miracles just in the last 20 years or so. The table of contents is actually kind of fascinating. It's just like miracles in Asia, miracles in South America, miracles in Africa, and on and on and on, all these. And it's, this is not hearsay. Um, often what you'll find in this book is peer-reviewed journals, pre- and post-MRI, X-ray, CAT scan images, where they cannot explain what has occurred in these particular people apart from the supernatural. There's this one particular story about a, uh, a Russian woman who goes into the hospital to have her spleen removed. Her church is back praying for her. She goes in, gets her spleen removed. Then later on, she goes for a post-op checkup. All of a sudden, she's got a spleen again. I mean, they took the spleen out. Now she's got a spleen again. How did it get in there? They don't know. It's just wild. Now, what do you do with that if you don't believe in this category of miracles? Some people say, well, it's the placebo effect or the power of suggestion, or maybe there was some mistake. And, and sometimes that might be the case. But those naturalistic explanations are not sufficient to explain the data that is there. In the recent study among doctors cited in that book, it says 70% of the doctors surveyed said they believed in miracles. These are not uneducated, uncivilized people. These are physicians. And when they were asked, have you seen a miracle in your private practice, 40% of them said yes firsthand. My friend, if you're skeptical of all things supernatural, you're going to have a really hard time categorizing this data. Now, I'm not saying that you shouldn't be critically minded. You should. I'm saying maybe you're not being critically minded enough. So avoid this arrogant cynicism. And as Christians, I think this can even come and creep into the body of Christ sometimes. Sometimes Christians can even be kind of cynical about this concept. Oh, you know, that's what God does. He, he, you know, he's done that in the past. He doesn't do that kind of stuff either, anymore. I don't think that that's true either. God is still God, and he could still do whatever he wants to do. A Christianity is not just about being good. Christianity is about believing in the supernatural creator of all things who at times intervenes into his creation. So I would encourage you to be open with what God might want to do in your life. He is still is in the miracle business today. 
As John Newton once wrote, thou art coming to a king, large petitions with thee bring, for his grace and power are such, none can ever ask too much. So avoid that. Now, that being said, I think you should also avoid kind of the other extreme. This is what I'm going to just call naive presumption. This is when you read the miracle stories of Jesus and then assume that they are prescriptive, not just descriptive. In other words, you assume that because Jesus healed this person at this time of this disease, therefore, I can count as a promise that he will always heal of my disease as well. That's not allowing the whole counsel of God to speak either. Other scriptures are clear. Sometimes God uses suffering in our lives for our own good and for his glory. And I don't understand how his ways are higher than my ways and his thoughts are higher than my thoughts and I submit to his sovereignty and there's some mystery there. He does promise that for all of his children we will ultimately be healed one day. That's true. But that day is not yet today. There is a sense in which his kingdom is still coming in the future. See, if you've been taught by God that he's, if you've been taught that that God is obligated to place you in a, in a kind of protective bubble and that nothing bad is ever supposed to happen to you as a child of God, the problem with that way of thinking is not only will you disappoint, be disappointed when those things come, and they will come, uh, but when they do come, rather than running to God for strength and for comfort and for peace and all that you need to get through that trial, instead, in that moment, you will run away from God out of bitterness and despair and anger with the Most High God himself, but the problem is with your own presumption. See, we have to have a category, and I'm just going to come up with this category. These are my words. I don't know. This is the best I can do. The category I would like you to consider today is a category called balanced biblical faith. This is a position of surrender and openness to God, a willingness to accept whatever he wants to do in my life. This is the position of the leper who said, Lord, if you are willing, make me clean. This is praying as Jesus taught us to pray, not my will, but yours be done. Balanced biblical faith says like Paul, God, I want to know you in the power of your resurrection, but I also want to know you in the fellowship of your sufferings. Balanced biblical faith is like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego thrown into the fiery furnace praying, God, I know that you can, and I'm praying that you will, but even if you don't, I am still going to serve you. I am still not going to bow down. You are my all-sufficient source of security. I trust in you. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Annie Johnson Flint said it this way, he giveth more grace as our burdens grow greater. He sendeth more grace when our labors increase. To added afflictions, he addeth his mercy. To multiplied trials, he multiplies uh, peace. His love has no limits. His grace has no measure. His power, no boundary known unto men. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. Balanced biblical faith. Now, with that said, I want to move from the first triad, the first three miracles, to the second three miracles. And things are about to move kind of from the normal to the extreme. From the normal to the extreme. In Matthew 8, 23, uh, here's what happens next. It says, then he got into the boat and his disciples followed him. Suddenly, a furious storm came up on the lake so that the waves swept over the boat. But Jesus was sleeping. So Jesus gets into a boat and his disciples are there and this 
furious squall comes up on the Sea of Galilee, which still happens today. Out of nowhere, the wind is blowing. Matthew uses the word seismos, which means there's a shaking uh, in the atmosphere. And the waves are actually covering the boat, and the disciples are terrified. Jesus is sleeping. There's always that guy on the airplane, no matter how much turbulence there is, he just won't be rattled, right? That's Jesus. He is calm as a cucumber, sleeping. So they wake him up, verse 25. The disciples went and woke him. Lord, save us, we're going to drown. Ever been there? I know you've heard, heard this story before. But just pretend like you didn't know the story because they didn't know the end of the story at this point. And when you're in your boat and your furious storm comes, you don't know the end of that story either. So just put yourself in their shoes for just a minute and hear this story with fresh ears. They are scared. This is extreme. Have you ever had your normal life ripped out from underneath of you? Things kind of switch. All of a sudden there's a you know, things were fine, and now things start kind of coming apart at the seams. I remember there's a few times in my life where I have felt this kind of fear. I lived in Dallas, and we did not live in a nice part of town. So we were robbed, not once, not twice, but three times we were robbed. And this one particular time, I remember it was in the middle of the night, and I had woken up from my sleep, and, you know, someone had just smashed the glass in from the back seat of my car in order to get at my car stereo. And I remember just coming out and being so disoriented and frustrated and scared, and I was talking to this police officer about what happened, and I was just kind of stuck in fight or flight mode. I was scared. Sometimes in those extreme situations, I have trouble applying what I have already learned about God to those very real-life situations. Are you with me there? That's where the disciples are. Lord, save us, we're going to drown. Verse 26. It says this, he replied, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? Then he got up and rebuked the wind and the waves, and it was completely calm. All of a sudden, the sea is like glass. All of a sudden, there's not even a breeze. And now, the response to this Jesus is incredible. 27, the men were amazed, and they asked, what kind of a man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him? What manner of man is this? Who is this? Who is this? At Matthew's question, the disciples still don't have the answer to this question, but one thing they do know for sure, this Jesus has authority over disaster. This Jesus has an ability to calm the storms around us. Who is this? Many scholars have pointed out the significant parallels with Psalm 107. Take a look. Who is this? They saw the works of the Lord, his wonderful deeds in the deep, for he spoke and stirred up the tempest that lifted high the waves in their peril their courage melted away, then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he stilled the storm to a whisper. The waves of the sea were hushed. They were glad when it grew calm, and he guided them to their desired haven. Fascinating language, isn't it? Who is this? 
Now, out of these nine miracle stories, there is only one scene. There is only one scene where the characters in that scene actually know the answer to that question, who is Jesus? And we're about to see that scene next. And if you thought this last particular miracle was extreme, things are about to get kicked up a notch. So we're going to go to the HNL. You know what the HNL is, right? Whole nother level. Okay, HNL. 28. When he arrived at the other side of the region of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men coming from the tombs met him. They were so violent that no one could pass that way. What do you want with us, son of God? Have you come here to destroy us before the appointed time? Now, isn't that something? These demons not only know their fate, not not only do they know their doom, they also know exactly who they are interacting with, don't they? These demons are so upset, Matthew tells us, that they ask him, just don't torture us, send us over there into a a herd of pigs. And Matthew's Jewish audience would would have gotten kind of a kick out of that. Pigs were were filthy animals. Nothing was more detestable than pigs. And to, to send them into a herd of pigs was actually a little comic relief for the readers. And then after they get sent into the pigs, something even more hilarious happens. The pigs like go kamikaze and they start running together as a herd and they, they all fall off this cliff into the sea and they all drown. And at that point, the audience is just rolling over with laughter. Because Matthew is, is showing us a Jesus who not only scores a decisive victory over his enemies, he's even humiliating them. The lesson is really clear. Jesus has authority over demons. Jesus has authority over demons. I'll put that on the screen for you. Now, it's important to make a distinction between the word authority and the word power. The word authority is the Greek word exousia. The word power is the Greek word dunamis. They are not the same thing. Picture a football game. Next Sunday in the Super Bowl, the players will have power, but the referees will have authority. The players have power. They will often tower over the referees. The players are bigger, stronger, and more powerful than the older, smaller, and often out-of-shape refs. In a game, the players can use their power to knock you down, but the referees can use their authority to throw you out of the game. See, in the Gospels, the demons have power, but Jesus has authority. Jesus, we're told in Colossians chapter 1, has all things subjected to him. Uh, Ephesians chapter 1 says he's exalted far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And the very last words that Matthew will record to us in chapter 28 read like this. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me. Jesus has authority. The only problem with this story is that the owners of those pigs find out what happened and they actually get upset and they run Jesus out of town. Can you just think, just think about that reaction for a second? Here's these two poor men. They've been oppressed. They've been demon-possessed. Uh, you know, we got these two crazy guys. They've been set free. Jesus has broken the chains of evil out of their hearts, which have bound them. But rather than being glad and celebrating with the work of our Lord, all they can think about is what it costs them. People have not learned the lesson of the pigs. 
The lesson of the pigs is that possessions are nothing compared to the value of a person. See, our world teaches us that we use people because we love possessions. But Jesus comes on the scene with his kingdom and says, no, 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 no. You use possessions to love people. People are what matters to Jesus. Those who are materialistic and selfish in this world, who use other people and step over them to get what they want, have not yet learned the lesson of the pigs. Remember the greatest commandment, love God, love people with everything you are. We'll talk about the cost of following Jesus next week, but some people just don't want to pay that cost. That's miracle number five. Last one. Miracle number six is fascinating. It's incredible. You've got to check it out. The next thing that happens in the Gospel of Matthew is Jesus is teaching. There's a crowd that gathers, and then people are listening to, to him teach, but there's kind of no room to get in to, to, to see him. And then some friends bring a paralyzed man on a mat, and and they, they actually let him down through the roof. Can you just imagine if the roof opened up right here and then just some, you know, somebody come just... Here's what happens. Verse 2, some men brought to him a paralyzed man lying on a mat. Then it says this, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, take heart, son. Your sins are forgiven. Now, that's nice, I guess. I don't think that they were unhappy to hear those words, but that is not why they came. They came for physical healing, right? The Jewish leaders actually overhear Jesus' words. and They accuse Jesus of blasphemy for claiming to be able to forgive sins. And so Jesus asks this very thought-provoking question. He says this, which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? All of Jesus' questions in the Gospels are so thought-provoking. One time, I just, as an exercise, made a list of every question that Jesus asked in the Gospels because they were all so good. It's all, they're so intriguing. I mean, think about this question. On the one hand, it actually is a little easier just to say your sins are forgiven because that cannot be easily falsified. Uh, you don't know because, you know, it's something that is occurring in the spiritual realm. On the other hand... His work of forgiveness is much more difficult than his work of being able to heal one paralyzed man. His work of forgiveness will actually cost him everything he has. So which one is easier? That, that question really makes you think, doesn't it? Oh, Jesus doesn't let anybody answer that question, though. He, he answers it himself. He says this, but so that you may know, hinna subjunctives, this is a purpose clause. Here's the reason. So that you might know the Son of Man has what? Authority on earth to forgive sins, get up, take your mat, and go home. Now, if this was a movie, there would be a dramatic pause right here. This is the moment of truth. Here we're going to learn. This is kind of a climax, isn't it? Is Jesus really who he's claiming to be? Does he really have the authority, the power, the ability to forgive sins, yes or no? Here's the moment of truth. Sure enough, verse 7. Matthew just simply says, and the man got up and went home. Another healing. And in a sense, you might say Jesus gave these men more than they ever even asked for. They came with a friend who had a broken body, and he granted that request, but he also gave them deliverance for their broken hearts in his forgiveness 
the sixth lesson is clear, isn't it? Jesus has authority to forgive sins. That's really a deeper healing. Not far from New York City is a cemetery where there's a grave which has inscribed upon its headstone just one word, forgiven. No name, no date, no epitaph. One word. It is the most important word that can ever be said about any sinful human being. Forgiven. Friends, ultimately, whether you are forgiven or not by God will be all that matters. And here we learn that in Jesus' sixth miracle, he is willing and able to forgive sin. That's good news. Now, I could preach all day, but I know you guys don't want to do that. And time would prohibit me from going through these final three miracles. But if you read them at home, that you're going to find that Jesus has authority over blindness and over, over the deaf mute man, over the sick woman. And he even raises the dead, which is the miracle of all miracles. Canadian scientist G.B. Hardy one time said, when I looked at religion, I said, I have two questions. One, has anybody ever conquered death? Two, if they have, did they make a way for me to conquer death? So I checked the tomb of Buddha, and it was occupied. And I checked the tomb of Confucius, and it was occupied. And I checked the tomb of Muhammad, and it was occupied. And I came to the tomb of Jesus, and it was empty. And I said, there is one who has conquered death. And I asked the second question, did he make a way for me to do it? And then I opened my Bible and discovered that he said, because I live, you shall live also. Brothers and sisters, death is real, death is sobering, death is serious, death is immensely painful. But the good news for us is if we follow Jesus, for us, death is always temporary. Death is always, always, always temporary. To depart and be with Christ is better by far. Death does not have the last word. Jesus has the last word. So what's Matthew trying to tell us in chapter 8 and chapter 9? Why does he bundle all these nine miracles together, back to back to back to back to back? The lesson that he's trying to teach us is clear. Let me bring Dr. Doriani up to the witness stand. Every miracle teaches certain lessons about Jesus. He is the mighty Lord, the master of nature, the loving and compassionate Savior. The miracles display Jesus' power over and over he cures leprosy, paralysis, and blindness. He commands the winds and the waves, and they obey. We see Jesus' mastery over evil in the realm of the demons. The lesson Matthew is teaching with all of these miracles is that Jesus' authority is universal, which ultimately points us toward his identity, giving us the answer to the disciples' question in the boat. Who is this that the winds and the waves obey him? Who is able to cleanse a leper? Who can speak a word and miraculous heals, miraculously heal someone from a distance? Who has power over nature? Who can be more authoritative than the demonic realm? Who can forgive sins? Who is this? Who is this? Who is this? The answer comes from a strange place from the mouth of the demons. We know who you are, the very Son of God. That's the lesson of Matthew 8 and 9. And the lesson for us becomes this. 
if Jesus is the Son of God, and he is, if Jesus does have that kind of authority, and he does, if he speaks and the diseases obey, if he speaks and the demons obey, if he speaks and nature obeys, if he speaks and, and even death itself obeys, when he speaks to you and me, shouldn't we obey too? Shouldn't I come under the authority of Jesus? What will be my reaction to this very Son of God? Will I choose to place myself under his authority, or will I be like some others in this story who thought the cost was just too high? The choice is ours. But there's one guy who made the right choice. There's one guy who kind of writes himself into the very end of this story. As the worship team comes forward, I want to share with you one more verse. During this bundle of miracles is the exact time where Matthew himself becomes a Christian. Matthew, the writer of the Gospel of Matthew, take a look in chapter 9, verse 9. He, being Jesus, saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. Matthew says, this is the moment in my life, the moment where Jesus called, I got up out of my chair and I surrendered my life to him. Yeah, there was miracles over here, there was miracles over there, but the miracle that really meant the most to me was when Jesus, the Son of God, looked at me, a sinner, and invited me to come and follow him, and I said yes. And the only reason why we're reading the Gospel of Matthew this morning is because he answered the call. This verse kind of reminds me how the great painter Rembrandt would paint uh, pictures of Jesus' crucifixion, and then down in the corner, he would kind of paint himself in the painting. This is Matthew's way of saying, yeah, I was there too. When he was doing these miracles, I was there. When he was calling sinners, I was one of those sinners, and I got up out of my chair, and I came. This was my moment. I'm reminded of the words of Charles Wesley. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon, dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Will you have your Matthew moment and join him in following the very Son of God? Let's pray.